0: This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Raymond Chandler once wrote, the French have a phrase for it. The bastards have a phrase for everything and they're always right. To say goodbye is to die a little. (sighs) As we begin to make our long goodbyes, that's something to think about, isn't it? Maybe that's why it's so hard to let go of what's lost. It feels like dying a little. Just ask our old pal, Bigfoot Bjornsson.
1: I'd like to start today by reading two passages from my guest's new book, Paul Thomas Anderson, Masterworks, an absolutely staggering monograph, which drops this week. And I highly recommend all of you read, like immediately. Both of these passages, I think, rather neatly capture the spirit of Inherent Vice in general and today's scene in specific. And the first goes like this. Few directors are as fascinated by the spectacle of carefully maintained facades crumbling as Paul Thomas Anderson. Breakdowns are Anderson's specialty. In light of his fixation with physical and psychological deterioration, it's no wonder he eventually made a film called Inherent Vice. And the second passage, the eruptive side of Anderson's films, their eccentric outbursts and erratic ellipses their wild detours and leaps of faith, can plausibly be celebrated or dismissed as showmanship. But it also expresses a fundamental understanding of inherent vice that the center cannot hold. If in the long view his films stand up, whether as examples of ingenious and enduring engineering, glittering edifices to artistic self-regard, or markers of both their actual and imagined time and place, It is paradoxically because of their acknowledgement so achingly direct in places or else lurking in the corners of the frame and the backs of our minds that nothing is ever built to last god damn that's the good stuff and as i said those are passages from a book that drops this week entitled paul thomas anderson masterworks and joining me today is its author a critic writer and lecturer. Today's guest teaches cinema studies at the University of Toronto, is a contributing editor to CinemaScope, and reviews films for The Ringer, Sight and Sound, and Little
2: White Lies. Mr. Adam Nayman, thanks for coming on today. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Nothing more self-conscious than hearing your own prose read back to you in your life. <laughs> Boy, that's, a long, that's, a, that's, a, that's a long sentence. <laughs> I had a friend, actually, one of my friends who was one of my readers on the book very early on, she sent me this note and she goes, are your sentences so, so, so long and complex because Anderson's got these long, complex tracking shots. And I'm like, no, but that's really good. That's a good idea. Yeah. You should have said yes. Should have rolled with that. No, I'll just use it. Uh, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just use it going forward. But uh, no, I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm delighted to be here.
1: And I'm sure, I am sure you're excited to to think about something that you've you haven't thought much about at all, which is the film, which is a film made by Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm I'm sure you're not exhausted. You, see, in you the you,
2: least you think you're being sar- sardonic, but I'll tell you something: the book was finished in about mid m- mid February, mid March, signed off on because it's a big uh, physically large book and you know very elaborately printed and designed so actually since march except for all the the stuff i'm doing to get ready to promote it i've kind of it's been a pta free zone you know so actually and i mean this with your with with, with what we're talking on today and so other things i've been invited to do it's actually been delightful to uh pick back up and think about the movies because i kind of detoxed
1: well what's it like to come back to them after such an intense an intense period of study and immersion And then have that kind of clean break and then return to them because I feel like that's something that'll probably I'm I'm, I'm almost reaching out to you uh, in a a therapist sense like (laughs) tell me what it's going to be like because um, there's this episode and then there's one more it's going to be and I will have done a 45 episode (laughs) breakdown of Inherent Vice and then I'm going to walk away for a while I'm going to walk away and I'm curious what it's going to be like have I ruined this movie for myself or what is it going to be like for me when I come back to it, like what's it been like for you to reimmerse in these I, films?
2: I think that whether it's choosing a uh, 45 episode podcast or a 300 page book, you're choosing material that at least for your own personal taste, our own personal taste, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's level of inherent vice is probably minimal. You know, <laughs> something like something we're, we're choosing subject or a movie or a filmmaker that we don't think is going to disintegrate for us is going to sort of remain solid, sure. you know, and I think that one of the best ways to test your, uh, your love or your fandom or your, your admiration or your commitment to something is to really test it. You know, I mean, I think that in Anderson's case, it was harder to return while writing the book, oh. harder to return to the earlier films for a bunch of reasons. I, I like them less. They're very connected on an adolescent level just time of life and you know if you've read the book this book is not about me at all i mean there's nothing about me and my relationship to movies which is a valid way to talk about films in books and podcasts and conversation but you know boogie nights and magnolia were things i saw when i was a, a teenager and they are inextricably linked to those sensations even if it's not what's in the movie for me it was the life yeah. Where the later films are also tied to parts of my life, but I like those later films more, and maybe I like those later parts of my life more, or I'm happier to relate to them because they're not at this point, you know, 25 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. Um, you know, so now coming back to Like like Hair Advice doesn't actually feel that hard because I think by the time I saw that, the year it came out in, I was already kind of in my 30s. Not quite a dad yet, but like kind of in the house where I'm living now, like it, it, it doesn't feel like a hard thing to reclaim, and it's not a hard movie to to watch, you know. Thank like, you, thank you. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a very it's a it's a very chill watch. Yes. Yeah. So you with know, with a
1: lot of stuff going on in the in its heart. Oh means- yeah,
2: no, with 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 a ton of stuff going on, and it was one of two chapters in the book that I felt. I really had to nail uh, that precise inversion maybe of seriousness where it's not severe on the surface, but because of the literary source and because of the cultural period, I, I wanted to get a lot of what it's kind of getting at, right? This this chapter and and the master chapter were the ones where I sort of thought, I really want to do do right by the, the socio cultural uh, undergirding
0: yeah. of
2: this of of, of this material. It doesn't mean I didn't care in the other chapters, but uh, it 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 felt crucial, which is why in the way i I tried to look at the film in the context of even just that opening epigram, you know, under the paving stones of the beach and the to beach. try and uh, try and deconstruct where that came from. and you know, it's it the revolutionary Parisian <laughs> context in which it was. Yeah formulated and how Pynchon uses that and how anderson uses that you know i just, I just wanted to get it right and tying that
1: again I, I was telling you uh before we began recording how many moments in this book i was i was driven to anger not not out of disagreement but of, but in that that feeling of oh god damn it i should have thought of that and uh, one of my favorite bits of business is at the very beginning of the vice chapter in which you connect that Revolutionary French slogan, you know, under the paving stones, the beach, to the essentially the sigh uh, of Joni Mitchell's "Big Yellow Taxi" when she she has the line, which was written in 1970, the same year in which in the is set. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Yeah, which it's the sentiment, in, the sentiment in reverse, which could literally, it could have been such an appropriate tagline for this film, like they they paved paradise and put up a parking lot is that's 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 inherent vice that that is the definition of inherent vice uh in, in so many ways and that, again just minor aside that was one of those moments where i did uh, i was very happy to only have the book in a uh, pdf form and not my hard copy yet because i would have thrown it across the room i was so i was so annoyed at, at you
2: having come up with that also my, my flip side to that was while writing it i hadn't i didn't have the scene in front of me i was like when Shasta leaves, does she get in a big yellow taxi? Because if she does, I'm going to have to, I have a license to print money. And of course it's her own car, you know? I mean, I, I didn't really think it was a taxi, but you know, it's funny too how when you go through a movie, I mean, there's that Pauline Kael line, you know, she only watches a movie once and the fact that some of her reviews were so Persuasive and detailed obviously indicated that she took notes, that she had a good memory. Of course, also that meant that she sometimes, and this is not about shitting on paulie and Kale at all. That's like a different podcast. <laughs> but you know, there were sometimes lots of details, narrative details, visual details, dialogue details. Yeah. And you go through her reviews because of that stubbornness and also because this was pre-VHS DVD reviewing, sure. she got them wrong. So it's interesting with inherent vice when you when you go back to a movie and re-watch it, it it really actually can kind of clash with your not just your memories of it, but like even things you'd written about it before. (laughs) Because I wrote a bit about Inherent Vice for a magazine called Cineast when the movie came out, just a straight review. I was going back to that to kind of take some of the observations from it and reconfigure them. And just a couple of little things in that review kind of clashed with the movie that I was watching. Like, they're the viewing equivalent of factual errors. And the point of a book, which is in print and which has a long, long editing process, is you can't have space for those. The good part is, is it lets you feel and seem like you're really smart because you're catching up on details that readers have surely forgotten and then pulling those details out for the readers and they're like, oh man, I got to watch the movie again. The best compliment that anyone can give for the kind of close reading writing that I do with the Coen Brothers book, I got this a lot where people like that made me want to watch that scene again, which is why I love the subject of your podcast because it's so fine grained. And fine-tuned we're not having a general discussion about inherent vice though we are we're going into <laughs> a specific scene and you know if we're going to talk about a two-minute scene we got to be precise exactly and, and and there there's something about and
1: i think the master is this way too and I, and that's why i like that you you group them uh, when, earlier when you're talking about you know how you wanted to do
2: you give them to both know, justice. Right. Yeah.
1: there there is something about their kind of ghostly nature in the, it's I think all the more appropriate for Inherent Vice, which is about the idea of Inherent Vice, which inherently <laughs> renders things somewhat ghostly and kind of hard to grasp that Weirdly, and this is going to be A clumsy way of putting it, Inherent Vice is a hard film to remember as, as it is remember it exactly there's something about its about its structure about its pace about the way the scenes are built about around the about the way the the ideas are deployed that it does kind of play almost like a stoner fugue state that when uh like i've i'm sure like you i have seen this film many more times than is healthy or is normal and yet there are still moments where i'm when i'm re-watching it where I'll be like i totally forgot this scene existed or that this that this happens in this order there's something about the film that almost kind of disorders the brain from remembering it just as it happened which is kind of in keeping with the the entirety of the film's thematics is the the, the way that you will look at it with rose colored glasses and then when you watch it again in reality you're like oh man this is a downer this is way darker and scarier than i remember the film being
2: I'll I'll, I'll try and keep this to a to a controlled length but it's an interesting sort of talking point with him because with There Will Be Blood that's a movie that is not only much more hard cut in memory where it's almost designed to be remembered because the yeah. dialogue and the angles and just the incidents are so memorable but that's also a movie that is fully concrete and right up in your face until it gets elliptical and you have that jump cut towards the end which is my favorite moment in any Anderson film the kids jumping that, jump f- that 15 year them. cut yeah and that ellipticism, then I think, is more imbued in the master in yeah. inherent vice, where it's not like his focus or his concentration or his specificity as a filmmaker vanish, but as you say, he begins trusting this more ephemeral uh sort of you know barely <laughs> you know you know b- barely visible connective tissue sometimes between the scenes and it's one thing if he's imposing that choice but I, I he's not i think he's finding it in the material and when he comes back to phantom thread he's right back to that kind of bravura showmanship and it's pretty tight you know i'm mean, not yeah. saying Phantom thread's not mysterious but its mysteries are underneath a really easily discernible memorable romantic drama plotline. Yeah. But the, the Master and, uh, and Inherent Vice are somewhat, uh, they, they feel disordered, they, they 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 feel like fugues, you know? And in both cases, even though they're quite different movies, there's a lot between them. There's Joaquin Phoenix between them, there's the setting, there's the mid-century or mid to late 20th century kind of vibe. And uh, kind of cults and cults of personality and lost souls, they're a nice pair.
1: They are. I, I do think that they are the, I think that on the surface initially when, when I tell people that the best PTA double feature you, you could ever watch is the master and in inherent vice, you know, there's, you get that cocked eyebrow of just like, but no, 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 one is so serious and one is just so goofy, but no, they really are speaking to each other, whether it's about, whether it's the fact that they are kind of two films about how, you know, PTA kind of during the the press cycle for Inherent Vice, he, when people were like well, what is this what is what the hell is this what is this about and he's like oh it's just about how badly you know you can miss that one old lady that you know isn't right for you but you, you still miss her which isn't that isn't that master to Freddie quell or isn't that Freddie quell to master they're just just that one that you you know you want you want to be with but there's just you don't know how to make it work because they're so troublesome or problematic or cause such disarray and chaos in your world and I, I do think that more than any of any of the other groupings of films in his filmography, those two sp- so speak to one another and it's almost like they make me think a bit of the the, the Radiohead uh, uh, Kid A and Amnesiac relationship where Inherent Vice almost feels like he just wasn't done exploring those ideas completely. He had just like a little bit, a little bit more gas left in the tank than and wasn't able to get it all out in the master and that Inherent Vice is like this very, very extended epilogue to that story, which is appropriate because that's, I think a big part of The Master is about about that inability to totally let go. And so it it comes with this two and a half
2: hour epilogue of not letting go. Yeah, and and definitely it captures him, I think, at a moment of commitment uh, to an actor where, you know, you kind of have in the last four Anderson films, these little actor you know, diptychs, you know, with the yeah. 2 Day-Lewis movies and the two Phoenix movies. I think he uses Day-Lewis extremely differently in Phantom Thread than in There Will Be Blood, and there's time in between those movies, which suggests a kind of changed perspective, whereas in terms mm-hmm. of how Phoenix functions in the two movies back-to-back, it's not that the performances are similar, but the way he uses it as an actor, I think, is similar, where any sense that these movies are about yearning, or dissatisfaction, or curiosity, or something out of reach is keyed completely to the kind of acting style that Walking and Phoenix has. Good performances, bad performances. Good movies, bad movies. I think one of Phoenix's trademarks is he never has it together. Right.
0: <laughs> you know, and, and that's not. It's a, very a, true. A, no, it's, it's not, very true.
2: It's not making fun of him and maybe the essence of conflict when you're going to have character studies is characters don't have it together because movies about characters who have it together are boring, but he's not even ever playing a guy who like goes to pieces. He always plays a guy who starts in pieces. You know, that's that's a good point. He he does. I mean, I I guess if you go through the filmography, there's probably exceptions. I mean, like one exception is in We Own the Night where that guy actually kind of does have his shit together as a black sheep. And then by becoming a cop, he fucks his life up. But uh, a, a lot of the time, you know, Phoenix plays these kind of wrecks, and I love the difference too between the alcoholic wreck that he is in *The Master* and the hobbley <laughs> he's in *Inherent Vice*. *Inherent yeah. Vice* is a mellower movie because weed is mellower than than booze. I mean, in *The Master*, he's not functional, and in *Inherent Vice*, he's compromised, but he can he can dress himself, you know. <laughs> and he, he makes a pretty good disguise now and then. Pardon me. And he makes a pretty good disguise now and then. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, you know, I mean, I lo- I love both performances. I think the Inherent Vice performance is less showy. Yeah, well, it's it's a, it's a far more
1: reactive performance yeah. as as because and I think the in- interesting line that he straddles in that film, uh, or in Inherent Vice, is that he, in a way, he's he's playing. I mean, he's he's playing a very defined character, but at the same time, he's also having to play us and be constantly befuddled and confused. Like there's never a moment where Doc is ahead of us in the film. Like he is just at our level where he's that, you know, the first time anyone's watching that movie, and you're like, who? Okay, so there's a, a Nazi real estate developer, and so there's some dentists, and okay, and there's a there's a girl that he's missing. And he just his his constant state of befuddlement, I think, is meant to kind of, you know, I don't like I don't I don't know if I would call him an audience surrogate, but he is kind of playing our confusion and
2: embodying our confusion in that film. Which, well yeah, I think for sure, and I think that for a certain audience, part of that audience, which is not you or I, but let's say people who are 20 years older than we are, and this doesn't have anything to do with Pynchon or even with Anderson, but it has to do with the period. I think he is playing the audience to some extent. It's maybe not the audience that Inherent Vice was aimed at in terms of trying to turn a profit, but people with lived experience and memories yes. of that time. I think will be inside certain things that that performance gets out, especially the idea. And this is the only place where I think it's really similar to the big Lebowski, which is one of my favorite movies ever. Obviously I wrote a book on the Coen's and it's not about comparing things. I'm not going to like rank inherent Vice below something on your inherent Vice podcast, but I, I do. <laughs> Lebowski. But what I think it has in common with Lebowski is the idea of like, not just befuddlement, but you know, the dude is a, a non-professional <laughs> investigator. He doesn't really have the skill set, and so in a way what allows him to put things together is more just luck and really his own morality. I mean, that's yeah. the joke of the Big Lebowski. Is he's like one of the only nice people. I mean, that when you say it out loud it sounds dumb. Like he has concern for the missing girl, but it's not personal, it's moral, you know. Yeah. And what's interesting about Doc is he actually has a skill set as an investigator. He he's good at it. It's just the forces that he's arrayed against are so abstract and so and so dispersed i mean lebowski's plot and this is the genius of that movie makes perfect sense it's just that the dude's dumb the 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 plot of it, <laughs> the, 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 the plot of it i mean and with a different investigator you put humphrey bogart in the big lebowski the movie's over in two minutes exactly you know in inherent in vice it's really really genuinely hard to follow and it's not just doc's fault it's that the the, the tentacles, the, the, the tendrils of corruption are just so dispersed across this civic landscape. It's not Doc's fault. It's pretty hard to figure out what the hell is going on.
1: Or if not just hard, it's that, as you said, the tendrils are so dispersed that everything you're looking at is the golden fang. When you're looking at any vista in Los Angeles, there's no part that's untouched. So it's hard to see because you can't see where the evil begins and ends because it is so all-encompassing. There's no outline to see it right. against. There's, there's no part of goodness to delineate where the golden thing begins and goodness
2: uh, ends. I'm glad you said that because it lets me loop back to the point that I quite doc-like just lost that I was trying to make about the film's audience, which is I think for people who live inside that deflated sense of principle mm-hmm. or who maybe remember before they paved paradise. I mean, the whole point of Joni Mitchell's song is that it's an eternal condition and, you know, we shrink it to our own experience where it's like, well, you know, my boyfriend left me, so, you know, God is dead <laughs> or, you know, Eden, Eden's gone. But, you know, for, for people who believe there was a time before they paved paradise and put up a parking lot or people who had their own little personal paradise, whether it was literally, you know, Gordita Beach or some version of it, I think that the movie is quite sad. I think that for people who are watching it, who were around in that time and who were sympathetic to that lifestyle or parts of that lifestyle, it's probably a pretty anguishing experience, whereas you and I are approaching it more historiographically or anthropologically or or, or ethnographically, like, oh, that's a thing that happened that I know from culture. Sure. But not living in it, through it.
1: And yet you can still, the the emotional connection still resonates. And maybe part of that is just because for people of our generation, we've just been so spoon-fed the importance of the 60s and uh, and their passing as being kind of the the snapping of the american soul in some way uh which it wasn't but you know for the boomers and baby boomers that that came before us for them that was you know you know i remember don DeLillo calling like they say the assassination of kennedy is like that's the moment that broke broke the back of the american dream uh and so we've been so kind of spoon-fed the narrative of the 60s being the end of american goodness that you can almost by proxy Feel be hit by the emotional heft of, of that of the sociopolitical aspects of this movie, even if you're not, you know, Thomas Pinchon and sitting and looking back very angrily at that at that time that you were young and could have done something. But I also think that um by by attaching that and really digging far deeper than Pinchon ever did in the book into connecting that era's passing with the passing of a romantic relationship, then it does become something that. Those of us who are sitting there, like, oh my God, my boyfriend or girlfriend left me. God is dead, can can very much latch on and go, God damn, this really is what it's like to just to let go of someone, or not, or rather, to be unable to let go of someone who's let go of you. And there's a universal quality to that, despite being such an odd and ghostly film. And I think it's the same reason that The Master resonates so deeply for those that for whom it can resonate, because I know there's there's. I think these are the two films that are the most in some ways alienating of PTA's works but i think for those of us you know who can find that emotional core they're, they're two very 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 heartbreaking very very poignant films that kind of speak to what it can be like to to long and yearn for someone
2: for sure and 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 in the master i i'm of the mind that while you everything not just that everything you say is true that's very well said the other level that the movie exists on is quite comic which is it's the eternal story of the, the erotomaniac who can't get laid <laughs> which is where in some ways there's a similarity not socially or culturally or in terms of the part of america that's being depicted but i always think of it as his eyes wide shut even more than i think of phantom Thread as his eyes wide shut because the great joke of eyes wide shut is it's the comedy of constant interruption yeah. right <laughs> and that's what makes eyes wide shut a benwellian film is in benwell people can't leave they can't sit down they can't eat they can't do things they keep getting stopped and eyes wide shut every two minutes tom cruise is about to do something it's like oh shit, here's a phone call you know and the master has a, a version of that yeah. and I think that inherent vice has also got a bit of that rhythm where because he's investigating a crime this is about or a kidnapping or a disappearance or whatever and it's a parallel disappearance because it's it's wolfman and and shasta right yeah but he's also constantly being sidelined and detoured and interrupted and distracted and all these different little narrative portals are being opened up and he meets them to some extent in an unflappable way or unflappable within the context of being constantly stoned which is sort of like this weird deference to well fuck i guess so you know and it it, it, again it's one of those movies that i think uses that shaggy and he's a he is a shaggy dog of a person he is he is and Wolfman is a shaggy dog of a of a MacGuffin because he's literally a were, you know the, the werewolf name, you know, maybe yeah. Wolfman, but it's such a shaggy dog movie. So he just kind of keeps 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 kind of just missing what's 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 in front of him. And of course, as you say, by the end it's far less about the the crime or the disappearance than about the loss of the lover and the the acknowledgement. That paradise is lost. I guess it's been paved, it's been paved over. It paved you know, over, and that's that beautiful scene where he comes around the corner and sees the ridiculous curved tower uh, <laughs> over where he'd been in the rain with Jasper, yeah. which is a scene that on your podcast you covered. So we don't have to talk about it, but you know, it's it's it's, it's there in the DNA of the movie. And you know, I,
1: I've I've been there. Not to sound like Jake Killenhall and Zodiac, I've been to that location, and of course. Uh, not that there was ever obviously there was never an actual a built a golden thing there but they have rebuilt the little you know the little little alcove the little entranceway where Doc and shasta find wow. shelter they've that's been totally walled off that that little that little dip in the building is totally gone there's a new facade that's been put in place there uh speaking of paved over paradise i went to go visit that that place and just just kind of wanted to stand where in that little entranceway where Doc and Shasta stood, and it's totally gone now. It's just a giant flat white wall, which which seems very appropriate. Just like you know, we were also uh, there's a there's a moment in in your book where you you take the time to 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 focus on the moment where, and we've spoken about this as well, where Doc and the Golden Fang have their handoff, where he's hanging out with that perfectly Aryan family in front of the Macy's in North Hollywood, and it's such a wonderfully wonderfully filmed and staged moment and of course uh earlier this year uh that entire parking lot and that entire that, that building were raised to the ground uh destroyed and replaced with a giant condo condo slash mini mall emporium that is the most glaring disgusting eyesore and just once again just total eradication of what was to make room for a new parking the lot
2: the paved parking lot they painted the parking, parking lot up, with it, yeah. Put up art, an artificial paradise.
1: Yep, Yeah. Which is just so vice-like and depressing. Um, <laughs> but speaking of your book, one thing I, something else I wanted to talk about, which is uh, one of the things I loved most is uh, about it is how it explores PTA's films chronologically and not chronologically in terms of their release into the world, but rather mm-hmm. the the periods of time in which the films are set. And in and in, in, in doing so. Vice gets contextualized or recontextualized so much as being so much more a piece of PTA's ongoing vision, rather than seen as an outlier within it. Which I think, for a lot of people uh, that, that that who do think about this this kind of nerdy shit, I do think that a lot of people view Inherent Vice as an outlier in his universe that's kind of orbiting around all of the other films, whereas you contextualize it by showing it as part of this chronological American narrative, you really frame his film as being part of his overall vision of characters trying to assert their nostalgia or hopes for what the world should be upon a canvas that's constantly disintegrating in front of their lives. Um, We see Daniel Plainview doing that, we see Freddie Quell and Master both doing that to differing degrees, And then we come upon and there's a very specific reason why you don't go directly from the master to phantom thread to vice and we skip from and i'll let readers of the book or you can spoil it if you want but i'll let readers of the book uh see that why that happens but when you get to vice you, you realize that doc along with literally every other character in this film is is an avatar of that idea of these characters who are constantly trying to assert their want for the world, their vision for the world, their nostalgia for the world, upon a world that is crumbling like wet sand in front of them, which again really reasserts what a hauntingly sad film inherent vice can be, and not just the the Zucker brothers goofballery of the trailer and of some and, and some genuine moments in the film. Just a truly sad film about how the world will never comport to your need. For, for what you need it to be, that it is a, it is truly a world ruled by inherent vice. And when you contextualize it by that, you begin to see that all of PTA's films, the driving force, the kind of the motor in all of them is the idea of, an, of a character versus the idea of inherent vice itself, and that that's the nuclear core kind of a, of a lot of
2: his work. It's not just bad dads in the valley. No, it's not just bad dads in the valley, but bad dads in the valley works for that because there's that kernel of, uh, of guilt or regret or transgression that's kind of you know eating away at them from the inside. I mean, there's that line in Magnolia that, certainly not underquoted, in either the movie or in studies of Anderson, but you know we may be through with the past, but the past isn't through with us, and there's a lot of meaning in that. I actually think in Magnolia specifically, its meaning is kind of banal the way I think a lot of the big lines in that movie land a bit thuddingly. But the idea that, uh, you know, nostalgia is all about the past and expectation and, and memory and and the things that we're told we're going to get when we grow up, those are all things that were kind of told in the past. And the past doesn't square with the present, The future yeah. is always out of reach. So a lot of the time his characters are kind of imploding from the inside. And I think what's interesting that those implosions or explosions were a big part of his early half of his career. I mean, right up to something like Punch Drunk Love, which is just all about a guy who can't contain his frustration anymore and, you know, just freaks out a lot. And casting Adam Sandler to play that guy is pretty brilliant. I think that the feeling of loss of a larger psychogeographical mapping of loss, if not onto the whole country, then onto its extreme tip. You know, California is where you go to be as American as you can. It's like as far away as possible from the Atlantic Ocean and from the, the colonies and all that, you know, you just yeah. go to the other, other ocean. Uh, I think that that really starts and There Will Be Blood. And that's why starting the book with that movie. Um, I don't want to use the word like daring because people who describe themselves as daring, unless they're Evil evil, you know, probably shouldn't. But it was, it was a <laughs> risk because by the, the, whole, the whole thing with There Will Be Blood is it's like the reinvention of Anderson as a filmmaker and really yeah. in some ways the final uh, definitive embrace of him as this great formalist where people who were doubting him for the first 10 years are now like, oh, this is clearly good. And it's so interesting to write about that movie without that evolution narrative behind it. Sure. It's like, what if this is the beginning? And I think that that is such a, it, that movie works so well within its two hours and however many minutes as a move from an, a, an unblemished beginning to a horribly ruined end. But if you take that unblemished beginning or that almost unblemished beginning and put it as the primal scene of his whole body of work, I think it works. Yeah, I think, nice. I, think I think the structure I chose starts to get a little fussy where you're like, well, technically Boogie Nights is before Sydney or, or Hard Eight. Heartache was made first. It's really weird to tell that story out of order. And then like punch Trunk Love is kind of not really a historical movie at all. So, yeah. you know, I think by the end, I hope it works and I tried to make it work, but I mean, man, going back and having There Will Be Blood, The Master and Inherent Vice is kind of like setting up his, his, his worldview. It works really well.
1: And it, I mean, it absolutely does. And I think it's actually kind of crucial to the understanding of his films, mm-hmm. even though you know, none of them were conceived to be, you know, I, I I do think that PTA is is an absolute, no pun intended master uh, filmmaker, but I don't think that he's such a master that, you know, he was hoping one day that people were gonna unlock a structure where you're supposed to look at him this way, but it does so work within that context. And I think it, by removing them just from their simple running order, where you give them a very eight, where one can just give them a very one through eight Okay, this film leads to this film leads to this film leads to this film, and you know everyone likes to look at that pivot from Punch Drunk to uh, to There Will Be Blood as as we've said, you know the, the evolution from Coke Kid to Weed Dad to kind of to strip the narrative of that and uh, view the films alone and and within that 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 context of time itself, it re it reimagines all of them and allows you to view them in a totally different way. Even someone like me who has watched in Hair of Ice way too many times there were so many moments when I was reading your chapter I'm like son of a bitch he's right like I would stumble upon something new and again I get really annoyed because you thought of it and I didn't and there'd be these people like this this so disorders and reorders what I thought this film was and I also think that it's crucial to keep of the one thing to keep together in his filmography to keep the kind of the, the triad of blood master and vice as a kind of body of work that's whispering to each other that the films are all kind of whispering to each other i think is crucial because yeah, i do no. think that those are the three films that most have a centralized figure projecting their ideas of what the world should be outward onto the world and the world just whisper, just kind of calmly saying back
2: no no yeah no well, they are, they are they are movies in which the world kind of the world kind of says no and it's yeah. interesting too that in those three movies and again you know i mean we'll will 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 narrow things into inherent advice in a second when we do the scene but it's interesting that in there will be blood daniel plainview's the character who's most least likely to take no for an answer <laughs> i mean he ends up being getting these rejections from fate and circumstance and, yeah. and Duality, but you know, he he really imposes himself and freddie is not so equipped to yeah <laughs> and doc is not so equipped to but it's interesting that where daniel plainview loses his strength by the end of the first movie is really commensurate with this kind of addiction that he has where the addiction to drilling or the addiction to power and money in some ways is quite edifying but alcohol kind of like he becomes so imprecise the way, that his, the way that he slurs and can't talk and he can't present himself in public anymore and retreats into this kind of alcoholic fugue, that's also really, really interesting in setting up both Freddy and the Master and Doc and Inherent Vice, who are characters who we're not seeing slip into that dependency, but they're kind of already in its grip when the movie yeah. starts. But I think well, the dependency and in Inherent Vice is a bit mellower. Well, obviously.
1: You know, a, a bit. And and th- what's interesting is because these three men are all attempting the same thing, and, and albeit in extraordinarily different ways to kind of project their their ideas of what the world should be, or what they want it to be, or need it to be, or hope it could be, there are also three men who, in the words of uh, Mrs. Dodd, just can't
2: take this world straight. Yeah, it's that's a, that's a big line in Anderson's movies. It's a huge line, you can't take this world straight. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking line, and it's one that I think could be implied
1: to just about every character in this film and specifically the two characters who we find in today's scene who- Nice, nicely, nicely done. Give myself a clap. Let's do yeah. that. Uh, but th- th- that's that's exactly what this scene is. It's two men who, who one has already realized this and I think the other is coming to realize that they just can't take this world straight. Yeah. And with that in mind, we are going to watch this scene and be right back, and we're going to talk about it.
0: Oh, get out. Bigfoot and. smashed down my door. Come on. After a long and busy day of civil rights violations, I found myself in the neighborhood and compelled to drop in. Just to check and see the current state of affairs my old stomping grounds. Seeing as
2: your effort to keep lines of communication had been limited, to say the least. Well, I've been busy. Trying to figure out which side of the zigzag paper is the sticky sign. Give it to me. sorry.
3: Are you okay, brother?
0: I'm not your brother.
2: How about you could use a keeper?
1: So, of the the myriad of millions of things that I obviously find so fascinating about this film. Uh, One of them is the film's near perverse need to elide total understanding by its audience. You know, after, after, after climaxing from a from a plot perspective, with this sweetly unambiguous return of Coy Harlingen to his family, which I think likely confused or surprised a lot of first time viewers who like Doc, because he he is kind of representing us here. Uh, I think, like Doc, we all thought the real story was going to be about the rescue of Mickey Wolfman and especially the return of Chastity Hepworth. Um, and the film kind of reveals to us, no, no, it was never about that. It was just about getting this guy home and putting this one family together as, as the world falls apart around him. Um, after that, I, I, after that one sweetly unambiguous moment, I, I am never not tickled that Inherent Vice more or less size its way to its closing credits with a trio of scenes that are increasingly opaque in their reviews refusal to provide any kind of like clear or easily digestible meaning. There's the the capture of the golden thing the vessel, which happens in this <laughs> the capture of this avatar of ultimate evil, which is which takes place in this most offhand middle of a montage moment in which the film is almost can't be bothered to really stop to address that this is this in any other movie would be the explosive like 15-minute finale. And even in the, even in Pinchon's book has a much longer sequence in which the Department of Justice is j- sending speedboats to chase after. And, and, and in the film, it's just like Doc and Saunds are like, so justice was done? Okay, cool. Uh, and, then, and then that slides obviously into this today scene, the final encounter with Doc and Bigfoot, which doesn't take place in the book at all and then Doc and Shasta riding out into the fog. And it's as if Anderson and the film can't help but remuddy the waters with ambiguity after giving us one purely and unambiguous moment. That there had to be, if, if, if that scene of Koi being returned to his family is the, the one unambiguous core idea in the film, everything around it has to begin to to crumble. The center can't hold, and our understanding of it and the story must eventually give way and crumble into confusion again, uh, as it can easily do in this moment where Bigfoot Bjornson eats a whole goddamn tray of weed. And so, with that in mind, I'm curious: what did you think of this moment upon first seeing it, and how do you how do you view it now? Because I do think this is one of those moments. This one of the most thematically rich and one of the most prismatic in that you can go, I think, about 25 different ways with how you view what happens here.
2: Yeah, I saw in Vice* for the first time at, I think, the Warner Brothers screening room on the outskirts of Toronto Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and Warner, yeah, Warner. Right, Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers movie, Warner Brothers' picture making sure I'm not false memories. And it was a small little screening room, but a big screen. And it was one of those uh, for your consideration screenings that where they'll have yeah. them at like 10 AM and 2 PM on the same day. So they're not that crowded. And, uh, you know, I, I have very strong recall of seeing that you know, for the first time and just being completely uh, broken by Brolin's acting, <laughs> broken in the sense of laughing because he's very funny. Yeah. But also when his uh, face empties out, I think in the book, I describe him as something like, uh, you know, Jack, he's like Dragnet, he's like Jack Webb, but you know, like a, like Jack Webb becoming Frank Serpico or something, the, the, the way that this cartoonish performance melted into sort of just total anguish and this feeling of loss. And the, the one character in the movie who's kind of got the solidity of a brick wall yeah. who he acts with the solidity of a brick wall, you know, is, is crumbling a bit. And and even divorced from really an interpretive response to it the first time, uh, just being very affected by that on just a level of like, you know, if Bigfoot's falling apart, <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean for the rest of us? <laughs> that that great line you had is you
1: wrote that. Uh, uh, his face has become a devastated landscape to rival Lancaster Dodd's at the end of *The Master*, right down to the flickers of desperate surrender in his eyes, as if Jack Webb had become momentarily possessed by Frank Serpico, Which I am going to throw in there just because that's such a great goddamn line. I had to. I had to. I had to say it
2: aloud. But but then you know, but then more generally, you think of *The Master* because it's this final confrontation between two characters who seem, in a way, to sink. It's just yeah. that in *The Master* he doesn't go so far as to actually have them sync their dialogue together. <laughs> but, and again, I have to be careful to not go too deep into The Master, which is a movie that I love. And that, that scene with Slowboat to China is misinterpreted, I think, even by some very smart people as a, a Hail Mary, like a way out of the movie when it's actually just the end of a thread that's run through the whole movie. Yeah. about seamanship and uh, wandering and possessiveness, and what it means to have somebody to yourself alone, both for Dodd, but also for Freddie. Yeah. And, and to be wanted. wanted. Pardon me? And to be wanted. That be I wanted. that
1: and, and but you had a great line in in I we're going into total master territory, but whatever. It's an it's a podcast on hair advice. We can talk about whatever we want. Yeah. Uh the idea that you expressed of um that tear rolling down uh Freddie's cheek, um, in the the love and appreciation of being wanted, but also the knowledge that the understanding that that doesn't mean that that's enough for you to have to stay
2: yeah which I do and think I, is very much in
1: keeping with inherent vice
2: I, I think it is too and I think that you know in the master also this idea that the song comes out of dog because he's someone we see sing he's a showman yeah. he's a performer I mean in a way it's an insane moment but it's in keeping yeah. and I think that, and I think that at the end of inherent vice what's interesting is that uh, in a way <laughs> uh Bigfoot doesn't stay true to what we've seen there is the one thing we never thought would happen like we're aware with it and this is Pynchon it's not just Anderson I mean it's not it's Pynchon the wary resentment and respect between them and the Mm -hmm. way that they represent the individual and the institution but there's this kind of common understanding that even though they're both investigating the same people there's no crossover between them and you would never ever see Doc move consciously or unconsciously to be more like bigfoot sure that scene to me is all about bigfoot moving i think against every rational impulse he has but in light of what he's learned about the golden fang and the death of his partner and his understanding of the world he wants to be more like doc hundred percent even if he doesn't want to be more like doc he's compelled to understand how the other half lives and in a way and i'm not trying to overstate the case but The scene is a bit of a vindication of doc's principle because he doesn't change and bigfoot i think who lives by principles and law and by the book and you know i mean even when he breaks the law or nudges the law it's in the service of his calling yeah Those, those principles don't hold and it's not like you can reduce the scene to saying hey the cop wants to be a hippie i mean if you say it out loud like that it's bad <laughs> but it, it's it, it, it's more about the um, this pull, this this de, this demagnetizing of of, of of Bigfoot's own moral compass or ethical compass, and how it leads him a little bit towards this guy he hates and resents. And when you get that idea of wanting to be the thing that you've abused, yeah. the movie opens up. It opens up emotionally. It opens up sexually. It opens up in all homoerotically. It opens up in all kinds of ways. When they are synced together like that exactly and, and that it's it's kind of shocking that this
1: scene is not in the book because yeah. it feels like such a necessity and such you know if we're talking about climaxes and you know koi being the scene with koi Koi return to his family kind of being the surprise climax of the plot that we didn't know was actually the plot uh i feel like emotionally very much so this is an this scene is a necessary climax to the the thread of, of feelings in the film and the, the thematic and emotional threads that wind through the film. And also it is kind of the necessity or the necessary conclusion to the arc of, of Doc and Bigfoot because, you know, you, you mentioned in the, in in, the, in in your Vice chapter that Doc kind of has two funhouse mirrors to his personality in this film. which Koi Harlingen, which is the man he could be, were he to choose a life that had a hearth and a home in it. Yeah. And that that's one way his life can go. But another way that, that Doc's life could very much go, because he is a man whose heart has been squashed beneath the boot of, of inherent vice, is to become embittered by that loss and unsure of where to go next, or who to love, or even how. And Alfie, obviously, that that mirrored connection is then finally amplified by this moment where they are facing each other like two reflections and literally say the exact same thing. You know, listen, I'm sorry about last night. Why do you have to be sorry? It's weird. Um, but but I think that where this scene so pays off and and works on that great inherent vice level where it can just be something like you said the first time you were watching it, you're just you're just able to laugh at it and you don't have to dig for any kind of deeper underpinnings or meanings, even though you can sense that there's something there. Um, but then when you watch it more and you dig into it more, i I find this to be one of the most heartbreaking moments in the, of the film because as much as they can be, Funhouse mirror reflections of each other. I think there's something totally. And as you said, maybe it's just the more the surety of morality uh, that Doc has in himself. There's something totally missing from Bigfoot that isn't quite gone from Doc yet. And I don't know if it's if it's hope or if it's love or it's just a moral code that Doc will not slide from that Bigfoot. You know, plays a little faster and looser, but. Uh, while both they they both have Freddie Quills, you can't take this world straight disease. There's something about the the voraciousness of Bigfoot's consumption uh, that is so different from Doc's, even though Doc's is very steady. There's he's, the uh... he, making up for lost. Even... <laughs> well, and
0: not it... just
1: not just that. It's it's, it's it's that idea of you know this is kind of the climax to this this running thread throughout the film, whether it's. Uh, uh, eating the bananas that fallically resemble his dead partner or the pancakes that represent his mother's love and respect. Or here, the pot that, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I don't think the Bigfoot wants to be a hippie. I do think, though, he wants to be the hero of this story yet knows he cannot. He's the guy that had to outsource vengeance for his partner's murder to the hippie that he can't stand a lot of the time. It's that Bigfoot understands his role
2: in this story and hates it. And so he's trying to absorb what he can't be. Well, for sure, and to develop the mirror thing between them two, I mean, it's what you say, or what you say, I say in the book, I mean, we obviously agree we are sinking like the characters. You know, <laughs> he could have been coy as a family man, and if he's in Bitter, he could be Bigfoot. But the other way in which he could be Bigfoot is that they are both in a professional, licensed way. I mean, they're investigators. Yeah. And that's, again, the difference between something like Lebowski, where the dude is a, an accidental Seamus, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing about, about Doc is, you know, I mean, he doesn't belong to a union, and he he barely has an office. But he I mean, get his job, he doesn't get paid. But like his job, his job, is to do right by the world. Yeah. And Bigfoot is someone who I think, as an LAPD officer, you just by saying those four letters, you're like, oh, both in a movie context and in a real world context, he's probably an asshole. But you know, <laughs> he he styles himself like one of those upstanding '50s detectives. I mean, I didn't mention Jack Webb and Dragnet. By accident, right? Yeah. And in the seventies, when this movie is taking place, just down the street in San Francisco, you have a guy like Harry Callahan and in Dirty Harry, who represents, you know, Bigfoot if his facade never broke. You know, Dirty Harry just internalizes that bitterness to the point where it's kind of what drives him. But yeah. he'd never he'd never take a dive into the weed bowl or, you know, <laughs> cry in front of a hippie. He'd actually just violate that hippie civic rights and beat the shit out of him more but bigfoot is first shown in the movie and you'll know if i'm wrong because you've done an obsessive podcast and i just wrote a chapter i mean one of the first times we see bigfoot is in hippie drag the very first on time on tv Yeah, you know, very first time what's which up, suggests doc? that we with what's up doc which suggests a kind of play acting in this garb yeah. And, it makes me, and it makes me think of the scene much later on. So it can't be an influence on Anderson, but it's getting at some of the same things. Once upon a time in Hollywood, when DiCaprio, as this Western star is being dressed by the costume designer to look Manson-ish, even before yeah. Manson is the thing. Yeah, We know that he looks like Charles Manson. No one knows who Charles Manson is yet because the movie is before the murders, but it's all about an aesthetic that is also about something in the air and with a generation changing. And the reason that I mentioned Serpico is because by the 70s, that's kind of what movie cops are. You know, with the exception of Dirty Harry at one extreme, you know, movie cops and the idea of cops these people who can't live with the guilt, with the inherent vice of their jobs and what they're really serving and the crisis of authority in America at the beginning of the 70s. Like, how do you represent law and order when you're working for fucking Richard Nixon? You know, like you either lean into it or you're repulsed by it. And I don't think Anderson was sitting with a checklist thinking of all that stuff. But it informs what is happening in that scene. The the counterculture doesn't yearn for authority. But authority, which is only made up of people, there's a moment where he's like, oh shit. (laughs) You know? Where do I go from here? What am I supposed to do next? What am I supposed to do next? And I think it's I think it's in line now, just speaking more generally, but Anderson, with the abundance of empathy that the guy has as a filmmaker, which can sometimes be seem undisciplined and out of control and embarrassing. It's not for nothing that this is the one moment in an inherent vice. Maybe the not the weed eating, but the tearful staring. It's yeah. like something from Magnolia. It's a moment of total recognition of someone's pain. Recognition, empathy pain i wouldn't say the majority of inherent vice is keyed to that exact emotional frequency it's 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 different yeah this is the anderson who kind of wants everybody in a way to have their catharsis which is what a movie like magnolia is about where we'll literally stop and demolish the fourth wall on several occasions so you can see people crying and i'm not (laughs) saying that in a belittling way i'm not what that movie is and this is you know
1: i i've said it on this show before and it's not like this Is it's not like this is an original idea by any means, but you know, uh, you know, PTA is kind of the child, you know, everyone calls him, you know, the the son of Scorsese and, and Altman and such, but like he's such a Jonathan Demi esque director and a, such an acolyte of Demi in that his films are just infused with this almost cosmic level of humanism, uh, that this undeniable humanism and love for his characters, with maybe the exception of Jimmy Gator, uh, that just this. And, and yet, and yet, despite that humanism, which, and I, and I do feel like this is a deeply humanist film, I think that you are right in which there are very few moments in which, in a Hair of Ice, in which that feeling is so unabashed as it is right here in this moment where we literally have our hero, our surrogate, us crying. And at first, you're, you're, you the first time you watch it, which is again, one of the great things about this film is how it can play on different levels, the first time you watch it you're just it's kind of a laugh that he's crying because he's crying because someone's eating his weed like he's just he's, you know he's like whoa you know this cop that could kick his ass so you know bigfoot can't do anything to stop him he's just eating his weed and you know doc was just settling in for a nice afternoon of getting high after after a hard week's worth or excuse me a hard week's work uh battling the golden fang missing shasta and returning koi yeah. but he's not just crying because bigfoot is Copiously eating his entire tray of weed, he's crying because he's recognizing, "Oh shit, this guy whose balls I've been busting the whole time, and, you know, having these little tete-a-tetes with, he is so goddamn irretrievably broken." And as, as 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 I said the the great coda to this sequence, you know, when he says, "Are you okay, brother?" and of course Bigfoot, as much as he maybe wants to, cannot cannot respond to that empathy with anything other than disdain and that, you know, that slate face, Easter Island head of Brolin's looking at him, just saying, you know, I'm not your brother. And maybe the most humanist statement in this film or any others of, of PTAs, no, but you could use a keeper and doc recognizing, and in a way I think that's doc both recognizing Bigfoot's pain and also maybe recognizing what, doc's role is in 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 this world overall this world that he you know that he's continually tried to see as a playground for he and shasta's love and where they're supposed to come back together it's almost like a recognition and maybe i'm reaching but again this is a podcast about inherent vice uh that it's almost Doc Doc recognizing his own place that he's doc as a keeper you know
2: like jewels like jewels at the end of the fiction he's got to be a shepherd Well, you you took the word out of my mouth i was going to say we were almost synced, We almost said it at the same time. But, you know, and it's funny, because in, uh, in Pulp Fiction, when Jackson says that, you know, I'm trying real hard to be a shepherd, there's the inherent comic uh, strain. And you know, and whether that's Tarantino just like admitting his love of genre or, The ferociousness of Jackson's performance being racially coded in a way that's very presumptuous by Tarantino, which I think is one of his big problems when he uses Jackson. But like when he says, "I'm trying real hard to be a shepherd," the emphasis is like this isn't going to last. You know, these guys better get out of this diner. I mean, Jules is not chill, but he's he's one step away from murdering everyone in, in this room. So, and and that the emphasis is on the effort. But yeah. you get a sense in inherent vice that actually wanting to be someone's keeper, and that's a multifaceted word, keeper, because keeper yeah. can also connote you know ownership and possessiveness with his relationship but, to Shasta. With Shasta, but you know I think Doc, I think being a keeper kind of comes easily to him, and it's something that Freddie and the Master is incapable of. Yeah, Freddie, Freddie can barely look after himself, but the triumph of the Master at the end is he kind of does. Yeah, I mean, Master is all about someone realizing that he's not a kept object. He doesn't have to be. And, uh, you know, there's true freedom at the end of that, even though you get the sense maybe at the end, he's always gonna be trapped by his fetishes and always gonna be trapped by his wants. He's a free agent in a, in a different way than before he met Master. And inherent vice, I think Doc really wants to protect. And in a way, maybe what he doesn't protect is himself.
1: That's the thing that's always put in hazard and put at risk to be someone, as we see throughout the film, Doc is constantly putting himself at hazard, you know, to to use a line from a a competitive, a film that competed a lot with uh, There Will Be Blood, which is uh, No Country for Old Men. When, you know, Tommy Lee Jones says, you know, if you're really going to try to do some good in this world, you have to be willing to put your soul at hazard. And that's exactly what Doc is, you know, that's, Part of the the Shaggy Dog detective story is you have to have a quite literally a knockabout detective at its center getting knocked about left and right like a pinball by all of these other forces. And that's kind of what Doc does is he's always putting himself at risk for a cause that he finds worthy. He literally is risking in the latter half of this film, he's risking his life, you know, to basically make sure this. This one bad, this one bad dad from the valley, not quite the valley, this one bad dad from Pasadena gets back together with his family and And is willing to put everything at risk for that.
2: And isn't it lovely how Anderson films him uh, in that scene, returning coy. He doesn't, he doesn't come in. No. Which is very much like uh, the searchers, right? Where you can't go in the door. Oh man, yeah. Oh you, man! You, you can you can you can bring the family together. I mean, it's like the searchers in reverse. It's not returning the daughter to the father. It's returning the father to the daughter. Right. Right. And there's a lot less at stake because you know Coy is not a an architect of the American West. He's kind of just like a dude, which is why he well which is why he's well played by Owen Wilson. I mean, Owen Wilson's sweet spot is just dude.
1: Wow.
2: Wow. Wow. But uh, <laughs> that's a good impression. But right. he, he 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 can't be part of the reunion. It's no. not his family doesn't have one, which is why. And it's not to step on your final increment because you'll you'll have someone for the last increment of you know of, of this podcast. But you know, I'm pretty sure the scene with Bigfoot, whether it's fantasy or not, it's two people who are there and present. Mm-hmm. I am not so sure about the last scene. Both in as- the rela- both in the relationship to the source text, whereas we do know Doc drives off alone. Yeah, hoping uh, the fog will reveal something better. The still. fog will reveal something. And here, Anderson, he 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 loves in punch drunk love the master this and uh, Phantom Thread. He's got boy boy and girl together. Yeah, this is the one where I am least certain that that is true. But you may want to get into that with a different. But guest.
1: isn't that kind of the point?
2: Isn't that isn't that
1: uncertainty? That uncertainty. Sure. You know, both on a thematic but also literal level, we can't be sure. You know, on a thematic level, we, we can't be sure that they'll ever end up together riding off into the sunset or the fog uh, because of the nature of the relationship. As You know, as Doc even puts it, but this, also this don't mean good. we're back together. But, but even also- literally, you can't be sure that she's in the car.
2: You can't well, know. Because we've spent a whole movie with uh, Joanna Newsom. Sort of least, yeah. As a sixth sense type character who, again, I'm not totalizing a reading of Inherent Vice. We're saying like he has imaginary friends. I mean, that's dumb. But she doesn't interact with anybody else. I mean, she's just there for him, and in the sense that she's the voice of the book, you know, there's there's a sense I think in which she's one kind of dream girl, which is she's an externalization of his his consciousness. She's there to help him. She has no agency of her own. She's really just kind of there to be Doc's, Jiminy Cricket, Jiminy Cricket, his yeah. keeper. And 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 by the end of the movie, uh, she's not there anymore shasta's there and i'm not sure that that's replacing uh, one thing for something more substantial it may just be more of the same but anyway well Well, as a final
1: beta you you even note in the book and maybe i was over reading into it there's almost an ominousness at play in the sacrifice for a wise a potentially imaginary wise voice of wisdom to Again, a potentially imaginary sacrificing that wisdom to just daydream the way you want things to be and going back to just almost re-succumbing, kind of as you said, uh, like Freddie at the end of the master re-succumbing to his own fetishes and desires, that 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 circularity and that that circuitousness. You you can wonder if Doc leaves this moment here wanting to be a keeper, wanting Wanting to make the effort to be the shepherd with someone who is equally lost, and then just losing him almost because there's no one to be a keeper for him, losing himself and his ideas and his nostalgia and getting back getting back into that fog of where he wants to be. And because there's no one there to catch him and sacrificing what he knows to be maybe the better angel of his nature in the form of sort of liege to just go back to, no, I just, I want to be in the car with Shasta Fe. That's, that's where I want. That's, that's what I want. And that's where, that's where I need to be headed. No matter what,
2: like I just want to get back into the car. Uh, be, to, to return to our increment briefly, because you, you mentioned no country and it seemed like a good end to do this. I mean, just to talk about Brolin, I mean, I'm sure over the course of this podcast where I know that you have, you know, he comes up cause he has his scenes and MVP of the film to me, MVP. They're, they're funny scenes, but what, uh, what a sudden, persuasive case he made for kind of major American actor there over a period, pretty late.
1: Yeah, late in the game, and that it's almost like he emerged from nowhere or from nothingness, totally reformed yeah, as this well, avatar of American masculinity and performance.
2: He's a he's a pretty reliably uh, interesting, and in his weird way, kind of unpredictable actor. It was not scripted that he was going to eat this
1: plate of like dump the entire uh <laughs> tray of weed. That was an ad lib on his part where he kept pushing PTA saying, "I think he has to go for it. He has to go for the whole thing. He can't just eat eat the roach. He's got to go for all of it." Yeah. And and PTA and his trust of actors is like, "Well, okay. I mean, if, if that's what you want to do, we'll do a take."
2: Yeah, I mean, it's he um he he's such a he's such a seemingly predictable easily legible actor because he's got the the chiseled looks yeah and he's got this really erect posture and you know he's quite handsome but he's really really good at playing people with these just little shivers of uh these little shiver shivers of uncertainty or clumsiness to them like i think of the part in in elephant not elephant in milk which he was actually oscar nominated for as, as the assassin probably yeah. milk and he's just this guy who seems to dread kind of what he's capable of but he doesn't show it to anybody he barely shows it to the audience but it's just enough and i think that in in his part here as as bigfoot you're so enjoying his physical comedy and his bullying and his kind of crew cut and and, and all the stuff is, that, that, that you talked about you but but at the same time it's not like the emotion comes out of nowhere it's coded into the acting he's very very smart the way he plays bigfoot i think because yeah. there's that frustration it's the frustration of someone who can't express how sad he is so it comes out as mean Exactly.
1: Exactly, and, and the way you described his character in Milk is as a as a man who like who dreads what he is capable of. I feel like that's something you see in almost all of his, yeah. you know, post resurgence performances. But I also think that is something that is definitively Bigfoot—a man who who dreads, not uh, not so much a man who dreads what he is capable of. Bigfoot is a man who dreads
2: what he is capable of feeling. Yeah, exactly. Who dreads? Who dreads what he's capable of feeling? And who functions quite invulnerably as a sight gag because we're laughing at him, but within the world of the movie, no one dares laugh at him. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing when he's sucking on the chocolate banana and stuff. That's like a very like 12 year old boy sight gag. I mean, it's not sophisticated (laughs) humor. It's really kind of. And yet, yet, but because Doc can't react to it because of the power dynamic you know that he's makes a look at him sidelong, or yeah, in the sense. moment when
1: when bigfoot's like no no cielo drive for bigfoot no the <laughs> doc literally has to lower his face to to not let bigfoot see that he's trying to laugh like yeah. as much as bigfoot or as much as doc will mock him he can't show
2: it because he's terrified of what bigfoot's reaction would be but even in the name bigfoot and this is obviously Pynchon, not anderson that idea of something primal underneath this kind of system of uh Of laws and rules and protocol you know it's 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 simian, it's ape-like and that's why it's so funny i mean one of the movie's last cartoon effects its last slapstick effect is him kicking in the door like lou ferrigno you know which is pretty funny it's a really it's a ridiculous moment i mean i don't i have to look at the scene again but it's not like very physically convincing it's like he's just like crashing into a set it
1: it is is, it's 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 an afterthought it's an afterthought like it's just it's like a papier-mâché door that he just is able to blow down like and walk yeah. right past it's what a perfect the way the
2: way that at that point within the film nothing startles doc anymore <laughs> he's just frustrated he's like bigfoot you kicked down my door my door yeah that's like just a,
1: narrating what movie. happens in, in frustration
2: that's some oh. funny shit
1: some funny shit, <laughs> some funny shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you should have closed out that chapter by the way for for sure, yeah. some funny shit Oh, speaking of closing out, on that note, I got to say, thank you so much for making time for this today, for coming on. Um, I highly recommend, uh, it, by the time this episode uh, drops, uh, it will be out in, in stores, online, indie bookshops, where you should be getting it, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Masterworks. It is an amazing encapsulation of the beginning to the, hopefully just the midpoint of PTA's career from... Sydney or Heartache to Phantom Threat, but reorganized and recontextualized in a way that is both really surprising and really interesting and well, just I'll very, very
2: satisfying. No, that that's really kind. And I'll see you inevitably for my podcast, which is just going to be called uh, Vice Increments, where we're just going to go through um, <laughs> Adam McKay's film Vice. Oh, uh, my God. You know, in in you know you know scene scene by scene, and then at the end of uh, each installment, the guest blows their brains out <laughs> yeah. after describing their least favorite scene. Oh from, my uh, god, that's a good uh, note to close on. But okay. Before <laughs>
1: before we roll out, do me a favor, tell everyone listening where they can find you and your work online.
2: Uh, I'm on Twitter at bro from another. Uh, I write often for The Ringer, as I guess a regular freelancer. Um, you can always find me in cinemascope read sometimes for reverse shot and uh, in terms of the book uh, let's just say Amazon's not the first place that I would suggest ordering from you can (laughs) order from bookshelf.org you can uh, order from a local bookstore who should be able to get it certainly you can order it from the Abrams website Um, but yeah the book is out by the time people hear this it'll be out it comes out October 20th and uh, I hope people enjoy it. It's a, it's a big, a big colorful visual production that even though there's like 70,000 words of text, if people end up judging it by its cover, I won't be sad because the people a little bit, did a beautiful job just making it. So, uh, yeah, I hope this ends up in someone's hands as a result of this podcast. And uh, I just couldn't have had a better time. So thank you. Thank you. And again, remember, you don't have to buy the book from the Golden Fang if you don't want to. You You can go to
1: an indie bookseller. And uh, again, thank you for coming on today. Thank you to everyone out there for listening. And you'll see me and hear me next time where myself and a very special guest are going to ride out into the fog together.
0: Oh, Bigfoot, you poor Flintstone flat-topped bastard. If anyone could make us love such a hippie hating mad dog as yourself, it's PTA. But now what? What's left for us to say? Or Doc and Shasta to do? Swordily says everything comes to an end. But does it really? Well, I guess we'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.